Hey everyone, Brock here. Unfortunately, I haven't had a lot of time free to be able to edit and make new videos and the audio only version for you guys. So what I wanted to try and do is clean up the audio and upload one of the live classes that we had a few weeks back in which we sort of wrap up the respiratory system and we discuss gas exchange and how it is our body is able to, to transport oxygen and carbon dioxide. Enjoy. So let us now come back to the Bohr effect. So what we were looking at here is essentially how it is that we can get hemoglobin to let go of the oxygen molecule. So it's moving around, like we've got hemoglobin with all these oxygens moving around the body. It's got that high binding affinity. And we're saying to, to basically to hemoglobin, stop, you need to deliver, let go of the oxygen here. And one of the ways we can do that is by pH. Okay, but there's a bit of a disconnect here, right? How is it that we have our tissues being slightly lower in terms of pH to even uh, do any of these things, to actually cause this? Well, that's a very good question, and I would love to answer that. And to that, we need to rewind back to this slide here. So here's the thing. When we are doing our daily thing, that is to say, undergoing aerobic respiration. So we are using oxygen to essentially that oxygen and um, sort of glucose, so sugar to create ATP. And one of the byproducts of that is carbon dioxide. Now, if we increase this metabolic activity by say increasing that demand on the tissue, we're going to increase more uh, the production of carbon dioxide. So say, for example, I suddenly jump up and go for a jog, <laughs> which is a completely mythical story. But anyway, so let's say I'm going to jump up and go for a run and I'm getting my leg muscles to start working and pumping and pushing me forward down the street. What that is going to do is increase my, the, my tissue, my skeletal muscles demand of oxygen, and it's going to be consuming more oxygen and breaking down or, or sorry, creating more carbon dioxide as a byproduct. Now, what's going to happen there is by producing carbon dioxide as a byproduct, we have an enzyme called carbonic anhydrase. Now, what carbonic anhydrase does, which if I'm going to do a little drawing here, uh, carbonic anhydrase is basically here. And what it is, it's an enzyme that will take carbon dioxide and water and convert it into this happy little molecule. Does anyone know what this molecule is called? So when we take carbon dioxide and water and we combine them together using carbonic anhydrase, can anyone tell me what, they, what it makes? Yes. Yeah, carbonic acid. Now there's a little, there's a key part in that name, acid, okay? So carbonic acid. And acids are uh, molecules that can donate or get rid of a hydrogen atom. So what's gonna happen is we're gonna produce this carbonic acid, which it's then basically going to be immediately converted into carbamate and release this hydrogen. Now, this is particularly important because what we are doing here is converting carbon dioxide 
which again, even though it's far more soluble than water, uh, sorry, than uh, oxygen, it's still really difficult to try and move and transport around the body. So we have carbon dioxide and water, which we turn into this acid. The acid gets rid of its hydrogen, which is making the pH in this tissue lower. Okay, the pH is going down, so it's getting more acidic. Huh, getting more acidic. Why is that ringing a bell? Why is that important? The Bohr effect. So this is why this is so cool. This is so dope because what the body is doing is let's say again, my leg muscles are under increased stress, increased demand. I'm using them a lot more because my fat ass is going for a jog down the street. That means my legs are consuming more oxygen and burning and oh, sorry, and producing more carbon dioxide. This carbon dioxide will begin to build up in my tissues and will be converted into carbonic acid, which is going to make my tissues more acidic. Then when the blood moves into my muscles, which is going to have increased blood supply because of obviously uh, undergoing this more strenuous physical demand, what that is going to do then as those red blood cells are entering my um, skeletal muscles of my leg, it's going, hey, this is more acidic. Uh-oh, butterfingers, I can't hold oxygen molecules. I'm going to deliver that oxygen to those skeletal muscles there, which means it's able to sort of manipulate this chemistry here in order to sort of deliver more oxygen to the tissues that need it most, because the more desperately that tissue needs oxygen, it's going to have um, more CO2 as a byproduct. Does that make sense, everyone? Yeah? Now that's the Bohr effect, and that explains why it is that we are able to deliver oxygen to tissues, but it's not the only thing. It's one of the main ones. There are two other ones that I'm going to explain here, okay? I'm, I'm trying to sort of trim as much of the fat as possible, guys, to not sort of have too much overwhelming content here. But another key thing, there's going to be three total. The first one that encourages hemoglobin to get rid of those oxygen molecules is a change in pH. The second one is carbon dioxide. So if you have more carbon dioxide, the saturation of hemoglobin is going to go down because it's delivering more CO2 to those, uh, sorry, <laughs> it's delivering more CO2. Oh goodness. It's delivering more oxygen to areas that have high CO2, like my leg muscles as I'm running. The third and final one, which again makes sense, is temperature. So as I'm running, as I'm increasing this metabolic demand, especially my skeletal muscles, not only do I have increased blood flow, which is going to increase temperature to that area, but I also have an increase in temperature because of friction. Okay, it's, it's increasing that temperature, which is going to lower the binding affinity of oxygen to hemoglobin. Now take all three of those things and combine them together. And that's what's happening in my legs as I'm running. Therefore, all three of those things are going to be lowering the binding affinity of oxygen to hemoglobin, which is going to increase the amount of oxygen delivery to my leg muscles to help improve the oxygenation of my legs because I'm burning through so much because it's under so much demand. Uh... Hydrogen makes it more acidic. So that's the definition of an acid, is a, is a hydrogen donor. So for instance, if I've got, say, 
do here we go uh who can tell me what this oh geez who, what this molecule is what's that called yes it's hydrochloric acid so if i pour this hydrochloric acid into water it's going to form h plus and cl minus that's what's making it acidic okay so what have we done here what we have done is if it we've stumbled on our words that's what we've done but we've also explained how oxygen is binding to hemoglobin here okay and it's basically just almost brute force right we've just got hemoglobin there it's going i don't really want to it's, it's almost like a little kid not wanting to eat their dinner you go i don't really want to and you're like yes you do nom nom here comes the airplane mummy's forcing you to eat <laughs> Right. And then as baby starts to eat, they go, oh, yeah, maybe I am hungry. And then they start to eat more and more and more. That's what we're seeing with. Geez, that's a weird analogy. But anyway, rolling. We'll roll with it. Moving on. That is how uh, hemoglobin is going from its T state to its R state. Right. And scooping up those oxygen molecules. Then as it leaves the lungs and comes down to our tissues, it's a combination of increased CO2 increased temperature and a decrease in pH or making it more acidic that causes hemoglobin to say, Hey, okay, let's, let's drop off these oxygen molecules. Let's deliver it to those, those tissues there. And that's a really good thing. Cause the last thing you want is sort of the blood to leave the heart, go down the sort of, you know, um, descending aorta and let's say branch off into the kidney and it goes, Oh boy, here's a tissue and just boom, just drop all of the oxygen. Okay, until then you get to your big toe and it goes, uh-oh, um, I don't have any oxygen left to give. Sorry, Mr. Big Toe, you miss out this cycle. Yeah, we, 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 don't, we don't want that. So it's controlling the amount of oxygen delivery to tissues based upon the current demand that that tissue is, uh, is under. Another thing too I should probably be clear on is... Yes, we have oxygen here completely. Oh, sorry. Uh, we have hemoglobin here completely in its R state. And here we have uh, hemoglobin here completely in its T state. This is a sliding scale. Also, you don't have any hemoglobin with zero oxygen. Generally, we are sitting about here. Okay. When you're looking at your oxygen saturation. We are basically at like 95-ish or 97, 98% saturated, which means almost all of them are like this, with some of them being like this. Because again, we don't turn around and take hemoglobin and dump all of the oxygen molecules out in one hit and then go back to their lungs and scoop all four oxygen molecules back in. It's like me saying for every breath you do, you must breathe into the maximum amount that you can and then exhale to the maximum amount that you can. It's just not practical. It's just not effective. It's not efficient. So our body doesn't do this. Yeah, it might drop one, maybe two. But again, that's why like if you suddenly take off at a sprint, you've got some oxygen molecules bound to these hemoglobins that can sort of pick up the slack and deliver oxygen. 
Okay, so where are we on our grand journey? We are here. So we've looked at oxygen delivery to our tissues. Cool. And this is yet another thing that you guys can put into our grand map of the pulmonary and systemic circuit. Yeah, so we added heaps of detail up here with our pulmonary capillaries, looking at the movement of oxygen through the alveoli and all that good stuff. So now you can add even more juicy detail down here on the systemic end. Now, this is, of course, a two-way street, okay? We've looked at this um, internal respiration, and we've always said there's a two-part process. It's oxygen moving in the tissues and the removal of carbon dioxide, okay? So, again, we're only halfway. We need to look at the other half now. So, there are three main ways in which carbon dioxide can be transported around the body. The first one is essentially just dissolution. It's being dissolved straight into the blood, which is a bit of a more feasible option for carbon dioxide because it is so much more soluble than what oxygen is. Is that possible for carbon dioxide? Yes. Does that mean you have bubbly, fizzly, fizzy blood? No. <laughs> okay, you don't have a soda stream in your bloodstream. It's not like that. Around 10%, if not less, of that carbon dioxide is just dissolved in the bloodstream and away it goes. The second option is binding to hemoglobin itself. So if we come back here and we have a look at this little diagram, let's say we've got a hemoglobin molecule and it is uh, taking a oxygen molecule. Okay, so an oxygen molecule used to be here. So it's going to take an oxygen molecule and move it out of, hemoglo of hemoglobin so we can move into the tissue. God, that's messy. That'll do. Then what can happen is in this empty space here, we can have CO2. Come in and go, oh, don't mind if I do. Thank you very much. And bind there and get essentially a, a, a free ride back to the lungs. Now, again, some molecules or some, some carbon dioxide travels this way, not much. Maybe like, I think, uh, like 15%. And even then, I think that's being generous, plus minus. The overwhelming majority is carried as bicarbonate, okay, as this molecule here. So to go through the carbon dioxide and water, we'll then jump on carbonic anhydrase, this enzyme, turning it into carbonic acid. And then carbonic acid will lose that hydrogen and turn into bicarbonate. And this does not bind to hemoglobin, okay? This moves into the red blood cell because what we need to remember is with our red blood cell. So we have our red blood cell like this. We have these hemoglobin proteins, that's supposed to say HB. <laughs> Let's do that again. HB. Okay. These hemoglobin molecules are, uh, these proteins are inside of our red blood cells. Now we need to really keep or take into account the size difference here, right? In one red blood cell, on average, we have something like 300 million hemoglobin proteins. Yeah, so that's basically over a billion oxygen molecules per red blood cell. And we, we got lots of red blood cells. 
So if we have our hemoglobin that's inside of our red blood cell, so is our bicarb. And that's how the bicarb travels around the body. Oxygen and carbon dioxide? Yeah, it can be, definitely. But not if the hemoglobin is saturated. So if the hemoglobin has four oxygen molecules, then no. If it's lost the oxygen molecule, it can definitely scoop up a CO2 molecule, grab onto it. Uh, yeah, because there's multiple hemoglobin molecules. There's 300 million of them in here, definitely. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's low iron, but uh, iron is in this heme group. It's the iron that helps grab onto those oxygen molecules. Yes, so um, anemia is linked to like low hemoglobin because we have what is called a heme group. So let me just bring that up. That is heme. So this is heme. And this is one of the four groups that is responsible for grabbing onto oxygen. So again, that's very complicated. We don't need to go into like looking at the sort of specific structure there. But what that is, is here. So you know how I was pointing out these four little binding groups for oxygen? That, if you, if you, you can kind of see it. Like if I grab this here, see that little thing there? That's basically the heme group. That's that uh, compound that I showed you before. That's what the oxygen is grabbing onto. So if you have a low iron, it makes it harder to synthesize hemoglobin. Okay, so coming back to here. So yeah, we can have, there's three main methods. And the, this is the big thing I would expect you to know here. These, right? We can either get CO2 to just dissolve in the blood. We can either get it to bind directly to hemoglobin. So like, for instance, we've got this terminal part here of the heme chain. We've got our carbon dioxide and we kind of just slam that carbon into this nitrogen and we get what is called carbamina hemoglobin. A fun word to say, especially if you say it 10 times really fast. Now, carbamina hemoglobin sounds like an incredibly complicated, tricky name until we pause for a second, we break down that word. So carb, carbon, amino, this, NH3, that is an amino group. So carb, amino, and it's on hemoglobin. So carbamina hemoglobin is essentially the CO2 molecule that's attached to the uh, amino group of hemoglobin. But again, do I expect you to know and be able to translate that name? No, not at all. I just don't want you guys to sort of freak out when you see, you know, big complicated names like this, because a lot of the times we can just break them down into their original terms. Um, and of course, the third and final way in which we transport um, CO2 is as bicarbonate. So what's going to happen is in the tissues, we take CO2, turn it to carbonic acid, it then loses that hydrogen, turns to bicarb. Bicarb then moves into the red blood cell. Those red blood cells then go through our venules, through our veins, back to our you know right atria, right ventricle, off to the lungs. And then what happens is when we're at the lungs, that bicarbonate ion turns back into carbonic acid, which then splits apart to form carbon dioxide and water. And from there, we breathe out. And that is how we get rid of that carbon dioxide from the body. So it's a whole journey for oxygen 
and CO2. Now, do I expect you to memorize this um, chemical equation? No. Do I expect you to say, see this chemical equation and you explain to me what is happening here? Yes. So I'm not expecting you to memorize this equation. That's something I would expect my biochem kitties to do. But I do expect you to understand the what and the why in terms of this equation. Is everyone okay with that? Does anyone have any questions or anything that you would like me to cover again? It is. It's really tough. Um, another thing too, guys, is that like this is just a section. Um, in my biochem class, we do this for like a full week. Um, just hemoglobin and myoglobin. So it is a, a full-on um, topic. And I've tried to sort of trim as much of this out as I can. Um, and it's quite reasonable to feel overwhelmed. This is a big week, this one. This th this is this was the big week that I was warning everyone about. This one's, there's a lot of content. There's a lot of information here that we'll be going through. Absolutely, yes. This is the last week for your exam. So it's week one to week five. So basically at the end of today's class, that will be everything that's up for grabs for your mid-trimester exam. Isn't that exciting? Hell yeah, it is. Oh, yes. Okay, let's now talk about VQ coupling or ventilation perfusion coupling. And I'm going to try and explain this in two ways. I'm going to try and explain this literally, as in to tell you guys what's happening. And then I'm going to try and use like a, uh, maybe a business analogy and hope doesn't fall and crumble to pieces. So we'll see how we go. Basically, ventilation perfusion coupling. What this describes is that if we change or alter the blood supply to the lungs, the airways are going to adjust accordingly. In the same way that if we change or adjust our airways, the blood supply to the lungs will change accordingly. Now, what is it that I mean by that? How can we how can we describe that further? So let's say, again, I decide to jump up and go for a jog. What's going to happen there is that my blood is going to turn more acidic, um, as well as my tissues getting more acidic. Uh, my carbon dioxide levels are going to go up. My oxygen levels are going to go down. And my brain is going to scream at me going, oh, God, he's going for a run again. God help us. So what's going to happen is... We are going to, because I'm obviously going under physical demand, I'm going to be increasing blood flow. I'm going to be increasing blood pressure. I'm going to be increasing cardiac output. All those wonderful juicy terms that we remember from when we did cardiovascular system. And that's going to result in increased blood flow to our pulmonary capillaries. What we need to do there is then subsequently increase the amount of airflow going down to our alveoli so I can match that demand. So we're going to see bronchodilation, okay? We're going to dilate those bronchioles to get more air in to match that blood supply to the lungs. So it's almost like um, uh, 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 if I have like supply and demand. So if I turn around, like let's say, you know, it's, everyone's in quarantine, Nintendo Switch sales have been going through the roof. So let's say... You know, everyone's going, man, I desperately need a Nintendo Switch. And let's say me being a business owner, turn around and go, oh, yeah, should have probably ordered that a few weeks ago. Um, Sorry, nothing I can do. Yeah, we don't want that. We've got high demand, no supply. 
So that would be in like my example here, I'm trying to run and I've increased uh, metabolic demand in my body, but I, I'm not getting enough air in, okay? There's heaps of demand, there's not enough supply. The shoe on the other foot then, what can happen the other way is let's say I've got heaps amount of breathing going on, but not enough blood supply going to the lungs. That would be like, hey guys, I got this quarantine thing under wraps. I bought like a million PlayStation 1s. In which case everyone's like, man, we're nearly up to the PS5. What you want about? We don't need a PS1. Which is like, uh-oh, I have heaps of, heaps of stuff, but nowhere to put it to, nowhere to deliver it. So that would be like heaps of um, airflow, like heaps of bronchodilation there. But bugger all, blood supply going to the lungs. So basically when it comes to ventilation, perfusion, coupling, so ventilation, moving air, perfusion, being blood supply or blood delivery, they will match each other and they will change according to supply and demand. So let's say I'm going for my jog, you know, I've increased that, bra uh, that bronchiodilation. I've got plenty of blood going to my lungs and suddenly I get to the end of the street, turn around and run back home going, uh -uh, that was a bad idea. And I get home, I go, that was tough. And I have a sit on the lounge and I go, okay, we're good. What's going to happen then is I'm obviously going to catch my breath. My oxygen and CO2 and pH levels are going to be restored back to normal. And what's going to happen is I'm not going to be breathing as much. Okay. My respiratory rate is going to become under control, which means I'm going to see some bronchoconstriction because I don't need to be moving that volume of air into and out of my lungs, which means then... I don't need as much blood being flowed to my lungs at one time because there's not that increased demand that there once was. So now what we're seeing is some vasoconstriction and bronchoconstriction to reduce that perfusion due to that decrease in um, ventilation. So basically, if one changes, the other one will change. That's what we're looking at here with these VQ coupling diagrams. Okay, and the last thing I want to mention is looking at our respiratory center, looking at our favorite area, the medulla oblongata, okay, and our pons. In the same way that we see our cardioaccelerator center and our cardioinhibitory center and our vasomotor center, we're now adding on another one. We've got our respiratory center. And what that's doing is it's essentially controlling the rhythm and depth of our breathing. So, uh, I don't care about this, that's fine. Um, this is what I've already covered, like passive or, um, you know, passive or, um, oh, my brain. Yeah, passive inhalation or passive exhalation. Um, yeah, we've already seen that. This is the diagram I want to talk about here because these two slides either side are basically talking about this image. So this is our medulla oblongata with our pons here. And what we're looking at is the respiratory center and some of the factors here that can control our rate of respiration. So the first ones I want to talk about here are our peripheral and our central chemoreceptors. So we've got, you know, our decrease in oxygen levels, increase in CO2 levels, increase in hydrogen, meaning it's getting more acidic. What that is telling me is, oh damn, he's under some like physical exertion. He's moving, he's running somewhere. We need to increase our respiratory rate. We can see these pluses. We need to increase our breathing. We need to increase rate and depth because I'm under physical exercise. 
Another thing too that will reinforce this stimulus from peripheral and central chemoreceptors is some receptors that are in our muscles and in our joints. So what that means is, is like when you say, if you seasoned veterans that exercise and stuff and you want to go for a jog, as you start jogging, even though you might not be much under much sort of physical strain or physical demand, just the fact that you started jogging as well as sort of muscle memory and stuff like that, you're respiratory rate is going to increase because your body is basically saying, okay, I'm getting a lot more um, neuronal firing in the legs and in the arms. There is a lot more physical activity here. They're probably going to be burning a lot more uh, energy and like consuming more oxygen. I better increase the rate of respiration just in case. Now, not only do we have stimuli here that can increase this respiratory rate and respiratory depth, we also have some that inhibit it. So this one here is looking at stretch receptors in the lungs. So what that means is, is that if I take a big deep breath in, so if I big deep breath in, I'm not getting any signals in my brain saying, hey man, you wanna breathe in? Do you wanna, do you wanna keep breathing in? That'd be really cool. Because essentially these stretch receptors in my lungs are firing saying, stop, bothering to try and breathe in because we're full. We have no more air. Uh, sorry, we have no more room for air. If you want to breathe again, we need to exhale and then inhale again. Another one is called irritant receptors. And I'm sure we've all been familiar with this. It's like we've got a, a chest infection or we've got a cold or something like that. And now lungs are just filled with goop and just we're not feeling great. And the last thing that you feel like doing is going, <gasps> Because if you did that, you would probably be launched into an absolute enormous coughing fit because your lungs are irritated, yeah? We don't want to be super stretching and constricting them if they're filled with mucus and possibly inflamed. So these receptors will be firing to the brain, basically saying, hey man, just chill, don't take some massive, huge, deep breaths because, you know, we're trying to get better here. Another one is looking at set of pain or emotional stimuli that can be responding to stimulus from the hippocampus. So again, if you're scared, if you're um, very emotional, that can cause, you know, drastic changes to your breathing. And the last one, of course, is looking at our cerebral cortex and higher brain function. So my cerebral cortex is saying, hey, my wonderful 1808 kitties need a good explanation and demonstration of proper breathing. You've got this. Send a signal to my respiratory center that causes me to go. <gasps> Job well done. So we do have a voluntary control over breathing of our respiratory rate and the depth of our breathing. Now, all of these slides here are basically just explaining what I've just gone through in this diagram here. Uh, again, we've already covered that. Um, now we do have some negative feedback here with regards to sort of breathing, looking at um, carbon dioxide concentrations and stuff like that. Um, basically what we can see here is like hyperventilating. So if you um, rapidly and deeply breathe in and out, you can remove a lot of that carbon dioxide, which is one of the primary stimuli to you breathing. So when you hold your breath and you go, oh man, I really need to breathe now. That's due to generally to carbon dioxide and that pH. This can also be an issue if you, again, hyperventilate and you breathe in and out too much, you can actually cause your blood to become slightly alkaline, which is basic. 
It's the other side of acidic. Um, this is why when people used to have panic attacks, they used to recommend to put a, a paper bag over their mouth and they breathe in the paper bag. Obviously, that's, you know, dangerous and we don't want to be suffocating people or, or causing them to turn more acidic. So that's not recommended uh, in modern days. Yeah, yeah. If you're having a panic attack, that's why some people recommend like breathing in your hands to recycle that carbon dioxide if you're, you know, having a full on panic attack. Again, it's not that worth it. Um, yeah, it's it's what. Yeah, it's one of those things that can cause more harm than good. Labor is a little bit of a different story, though. <laughs> so, guys, that is week five in a nutshell. Pretty straightforward, huh? Not too bad. Pretty, pretty cruisy. <laughs> so what have we done today, guys? What have we looked at? We've looked at three gas laws, technically two, but we looked at Boyle's law um, last week. Boyle's law is by far the most important. Okay, we definitely want to focus on Boyle's law, but we still need to understand um, Dalton's and Henry's law with respiration. We need to know our different lung volumes and our different lung capacities. We need to be aware that I don't want you to describe the composition as in like 20.9% of air is oxygen and 73 point blank percent is nitrogen and blah, blah, blah. I don't care. Just be aware that the composition of air surrounding us and the composition of air in your alveoli are different. They are not the same because we cannot exhale all the old air out of our lungs. We also need to look at the movement of oxygen and carbon dioxide throughout the body. This is where we spent almost all of today focusing on, okay? This was a big chunk. It is tricky. It is complicated. It will take some time to wrap your head around. Also, please be careful when you're Googling this because, again, we're just covering the bare basics. And if you sort of go on a, a wiki binge or you, you dive down the rabbit hole of Google, uh, it's, it's a whole new world there of biochemistry and stuff like that. So just be aware we're just after the basics. We then looked at uh, VQ coupling, so ventilation profusion coupling, and we've looked at some of the ways in which breathing can be controlled. And that's it, guys. We are done. Yep, still processing. Again, 100% understandable. So guys, um, between now and tomorrow, when we have our obviously our next lesson, Please really try and spend some time on this. I'll be uploading the recording of this um, as soon as I can onto Moodle. Rewatch this, rewatch the um, online lecture that's already on YouTube. Um, try and again, make a list, make some notes on what are some of the things that you're having trouble with that you would like me to re-explain. And we can spend some time going through that um, tomorrow. But guys, other than that, thank you very much for joining me to, uh, today. Study hard, do your best. I'll see you guys tomorrow.